Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Are you listening closely? Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. And the Langford Double isn't a wet knot! <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Fundamental Attribution Error and... The Hawthorne Effect. Today we'll be talking about The Prestige, which is available almost anywhere you can stream. Next week we'll be talking about the Mrs. Reynolds Firefly episodes, and after that we start Hot Sci-Fi Summer. Dan, tell the kids about Hot Sci-Fi Summer. I will, but I really feel like we need like, you know, like a radio thing where like it goes, Hot Sci-Fi Summer! Or something like that, you know? (laughs) Karen, can you provide us with Hot Sci-Fi Summer! Hot Sci-Fi Summer! (laughs) Uh, But mostly Hot Sci-Fi Summer will consist of uh, a visiting of of sort of peak cheesy 1980s sci-fi. So we'll be doing Highlander. We'll be doing Big Trouble in Little China. Anna, there was one you wanted to do, wasn't there? Terminator. Terminator, yes, we should do Terminator. And... Certainly an 80s homage, uh, Thor Love and Thunder. Yes, uh, so looking forward to that. That's actually coming up real fast. It is. I think we'll be doing that probably right after the Mrs. Reynolds one. I think so. Yeah. If you haven't already become a patron of this fine show, you would get those episodes early if mm-hmm. you were a patron. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dan, what's another benefit of becoming a patron? Well, among other things, you get access to our great Discord which is very lively and fun. And, you know, people occasionally make fun of me, but not all that much. And they seem to like me too. And they definitely <laughs> like to talk to Anna. And, you know, it's a, it's a good, nice community of like-minded nerds would be the way I would yeah, put it. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little reminder of what the internet used to be like. <laughs> yes. But another benefit of this, I would add, is that the more patrons we have, and we are getting close to 250, when we get to 250, we will do a patrons-only episode on a topic That's chosen right. by you, the patrons. Doesn't even have to be sci-fi. You know, you could make us watch, I don't know, well, not the January 6th hearings. I'd rather not do that. But you get my point. <laughs> Although they are kind of interesting TV, they're they're good. They're good entertainment. Yes, yes. The Coen Brothers, the version of Macbeth, which I actually kind of would like to watch Ooh, and talk okay. about. So right. I don't know. We'll leave it up to them. It'll be fun. Yeah. You can also make suggestions on the Discord, mm-hmm. and if you're a patron, you can make it on the Patreon page. Actually, I think anyone can make a suggestion on the Patreon page. And the Patreon page is, by the way, Patreon.com/slash Space the Nation. That's right. We also have a newsletter, which is mostly weekly, and you can subscribe to that at tinyletter.com slash space the nation. If you are interested in communicating with us more directly, you can always reach us on Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner and she is at Anna Marie Cox. Dan. Yes. How are you? I would say I'm feeling lighter, Anna. Oh. Mostly because an obligation that I have been doing for eight years has been lifted from me. Which is, I am no longer writing for the Washington Post. Boiler alerts has come to an end. My contract ran out. And, you know, it was the Post decision, but I'm not going to lie. I kind of wanted to change the arrangement a little bit because I was writing four columns a week, Anna. And that was fucking exhausting. It really was. And as I said in my farewell column, I think what happened is is that when I started, they were much more like blog post-like and, Mm -hmm. you know, Which meant that I was doing some work, obviously, but not writing as much my own text. And then I think over time, they just became much more column-like, and that required a much heavier lift. And so I was getting pretty wiped from that. And and so the knowledge that I don't have to do four themes a week is actually quite liberating. Yeah, I've said to you before as a former columnist myself that I feel like there should be a life, not a lifetime limit on how many columns you do, but there <laughs> should be some sort of requirement to take a break after a few years. Yes. 
Yes, I think that's a... column writing can get really stale. Oh, yeah. Like, for the column writer. Yeah. As well as for readers. Yeah. I won't name any names, but <laughs> <laughs> there are some columnists out there who, who probably could use a year sabbatical. <laughs> like, just to get back in touch with the people and their, am, own, and their own interests and shit, too. You I, know I am what I mean? already like, imagining our patrons, like, writing down, ask for next AMA. Yeah. <laughs> well... There's a lot of them. I mean, yeah. it's really hard. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I almost don't want to name them because it's not that they're bad. It's just like. No, it's because it's actually hard to write a column for yeah. the, frequently where you to maintain the quality, as it were. And so, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Also, I'm pretty happy because I went on my first international trip and knock on wood, I don't think I caught COVID and I actually had a good time. So that was that was all good. That's excellent, Dan. Those How are, are you, things. Anna? Well, I am still enjoying my kitten. Oh, uh, kitty. Who may or may not make another cameo in this <laughs> episode. She's in here with me. and uh, Did she make a voice cameo during our, our previous episode? Yeah, she was a oh, baby that's right. dino. That's right. That's right. She's a baby Excellent. dino. She still sounds a little bit like a baby dino. Like she has a little <laughs> screech rather than a meow. Mm -hmm. And she and the dog are getting along. And it's a real highlight of my life right now. I can't, I can't lie. <laughs> like, Aww. you know, because, Dan, you know what it turns out? Like, things are still really hard in the world. That is quite correct. Uh, like, yes. it still kind of sucks out there for a lot of reasons, mainly because we're still undergoing this, like, huge experiment in human trauma mm. that we don't know the results of yet. And can't really comprehend. Yeah, I fear we're kind of getting an inkling of what the results are, and they're not good. Um, oh, would be the yeah, way that's I would put true. It. Yeah, that's Sorry. true. We'll see. It, I believe I've said this before, so, but forgive me. I read an interesting sort of tidbit about the 1918 pandemic uh -huh. once, which is that there's a theory that there isn't actually a lot of art mm -hmm. about it, mm -hmm. right? And their theory is that it was actually so traumatic. Right, that people just didn't, you, it, was, did it, it was impolitic to bring it up. Anything yeah. Yeah. about it. And I'm sort of wondering if we're going to see something like that. Weirdly, I think this one will probably resonate a little more, mostly because it wasn't quite as devastating in That's terms true. of actual death. I mean, I don't mean to minimize it. I think 15 mm -hmm. million people have died, but that is actually a, a small fraction of what happened during the influenza pandemic with a much smaller population in the world but on the other hand the psychological you know effects probably were more severe because the influenza pandemic as bad as it was really mostly hit most places like in an intense six-week period and yeah. then after that was that this has been going on for two years so you know yeah it's different yeah no and We'll move on. How yeah, that, that, that? I How think that's probably on? a let's good idea. Let's move on. Okay, you know let's what? move on. Let's, let's talk. talk about the prestige. Yeah, let's, I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so you might be wondering, listeners, why this? And the answer is, this was a compromise. So I thought it was time that we dipped into Christopher Nolan's oeuvre, as it were, because, you know, a lot of his work is sort of sci-fi related. And this was the film that Anna wanted to do of Christopher Nolan's work. <laughs> We're going to probably have to do some more later, but, like, this is her favorite. Is that correct? We'd already done a Batman movie. I don't know. Like, we did as an extra episode, as a bonus episode, we talked about oh. the latest Batman. Yeah, but that doesn't count. It's not a Nolan film, so that's fair. I know, but okay. I just, I, I am also kind of... I'm not a huge fan of his stuff okay. in general. This is my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Interesting. And okay. in some ways, it's 
it has a lot of the same themes that Nolan's work usually does. Yes. He plays with but, time, there's symmetry, yeah, yeah. But maybe it's because he's working with someone else's original idea. Like, mm-hmm. And this might I, be the only film he did that was actually off of, or an adaptation, I, I believe. I think, well, unless you count Batman. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but uh, I think this is his only, like, literary adaptation would be the way Yeah, to Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. it restrains him in a, a way that I think he's more interesting in this sort of smaller hmm. scale than he usually works in. Or usually works in today. I mean, Memento is a very small scale. Yeah, yeah, as well. yeah. That one would be hard to do for our show. Though. No, it wouldn't this really one just barely makes it in. <laughs> there is sci-fi. I do. I I thought about it when you said yesterday. I was like, you know, there is sci-fi here. It's just you know, and it's funny to think about because there are some films where there's definitely sci-fi, even though it's antiquated sci-fi, as it were. But it definitely right. applies. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm gonna enjoy talking about sort of the sci-fi element of this. Maybe actually, it it might come up just in debris field because yeah. there's a way in which the sci-fi of it isn't the point right like no it's not the primary aspect of the film is the way i I think that would be the way to put it the sci-fi is incidental that's right and speaking of incidents (laughs) what is your Chekhov's what's it dan yes so uh we do check off what's it which is something that appears very often in the first act that we know is going to reappear in the third act this is difficult to do in a Christopher Nolan film because everything fucking reappears in a Christopher Nolan film. This entire movie, in some ways, is like told in a, in a series of flashbacks. That said, I will settle for Chekhov's top hats because they're literally the first thing you see. And yeah, they definitely make a reappearance. Yep. Uh, they are sort of like a gun going off, though a gun also literally goes off. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to top that one. Yeah. Um, but I also will say Chekhov's water tank. Ooh, yeah, that's creepy. Yes, yes. Well done. Well done. All right, let us move to the story behind the story. Anna, I remember when this movie came out, taking it as a good sign that Christian Bale, after having done Batman Begins with Nolan, decided, yeah, sure, I'll do another movie with him. What the hell? And so, because if memory serves, this came right after Batman Begins. Yes, uh, this came out right after Batman Begins. It was actually supposed to come out before it. Oh. And in fact, Christopher Nolan wanted to do the movie long before he had even, you know, Christian Bale was a was a glimmer in the Batman cowl. Mm-hmm. He read the book while on tour promoting Memento, mm-hmm. which is like 2000 or so. Yeah, I think so. And fell in love and uh, the option came up and it was him and Sam Mendes who were up for doing the adaptation. And I'm trying to imagine a Sam Mendes version of this. Like, (laughs) it's not that I think it would be worse or better. I just it would be different. That it's interesting. I almost kind of want Sam Mendes to make the version of it just so we can see the difference. Yeah. So Christopher Priest, who wrote the book that Mm -hmm. the movie is based on, which is itself based on the multiple rivalries which existed among real world Victorian magicians. I read more than I needed to about Victorian magicians. Oh, newsletter fans are going to really be happy. Good. Good. It's really interesting subculture. Mm -hmm. He was going to go with Mendes, but then Nolan sent him a copy of The Following. Mm-hmm. which was his first movie written with his brother as mm-hmm. well. And that made a priest decide to go with Nolan. Hmm. And Christian Bale wasn't originally part of the cast. Oh. Uh, Hugh Jackman was cast first. But the script that Nolan had written with his brother was one of those circulating in Hollywood as like best unmade scripts, Yeah, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And apparently Christian Bale got a hold of it while he was doing Batman or something. <laughs> And and said he wanted to be in it. And of course, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just imagining Christian Bale going to. Uh, sorry, Christian 
Gal going to Christopher Nolan and in his Batman voice saying, <laughs> I want to be in this film. You will cast me in the film. <laughs> I will play board. Well, he did. And of course, yes. like in, in Nolan says now, like it's hard to imagine anyone else yeah. doing it. I think it's interesting. He really wanted Jackman for the Angiers role. Mm-hmm. And it makes total sense if you think about it, like the kind of performer you know, Hugh Jackman is such a great stage presence. I honestly thought one of the most interesting dichotomies in this film is the idea between someone who's the better magician versus someone who's the better showman. And yeah. and weirdly, I actually think this film is unusual in that very often the idea that someone is a good showman is thought of as a bad thing. But I actually think the way this film does it is that you realize there's actually value to being a good showman. Yeah, there's value to being a good showman. Although yeah. I think this movie has two villains really oh yeah no no, no. I, yes 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 yeah the script did take a long time to write which is why it didn't come out before batman begins mm-hmm. and then just a couple of sort of trivia things which i think are interesting it is mostly pretty true to the history mm-hmm. of victorian magicians uh, which again i highly recommend people just just google real life prestige or <laughs> victorian magicians but there's a couple of interesting not mistakes but just in the history of magic, what it gets wrong. Water anachronisms, perhaps? Anachronisms. Yes, Thank there you. we go. Yeah. Water escapes, which of course play a big part in the movie, mm-hmm. were not really something that magicians did until Harry Houdini started doing them in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the sawing of woman in half trick didn't exist until 1921. Really? I did not yeah. know that. Interestingly, mm-hmm. the bullet catch trick goes yeah. back to like the 1600s. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And has always been considered very, very dangerous. Yeah. And there is the, um, I'm going to use, I think, the film's language here, the Chinaman magician. Mm-hmm. Yes. Based on a real magician who is not actually Chinese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a stage character created by William Ellsworth Robinson, who actually did disguise himself as a Chinese person and in public, mm-hmm. this is the, what, what is the real thing that it's based on, presented himself as Chinese. He died doing a bullet catch trick, mm-hmm. and his last words were, my God, I've been shot, which was not only his last words, but the first English he had spoken on stage in 19 years. Wow. So, Anna, just to be clear, I, I assume that these were actual terms that we hear, but like... The pledge, the turn, and the prestige are actually like the argot used by magicians? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the thing that is also really present in the movie, once you know you can't unsee it, is that the movie is in sort of three acts too, right? Right, like, yes. And it sort of has all of those elements. The last act is the prestige. And I'm going to intervene here before I talk about the plot to stress that for listeners who have not seen this movie before. Oh, God, you have to watch it first. Please watch the movie before you listen to this because, I mean, it is enjoyable upon repeat viewings, but there are certain things that should be experienced the first time on, you know, without any advanced knowledge of the plot because there are some legitimate plot twists in this film. Would that be a safe statement? It's a safe statement. Yeah, yeah you should. And, and it's worth, it's totally worth watching. It holds up really well. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it on second mm-hmm. viewing, and you did as well. And I may yeah. have liked it a little bit yes. more. But yes. it's also, we're going to talk about whether and how, how easy it is to figure out the twist, right? right? Yeah. So, you, dear listener, in order to enjoy that conversation, need to know what actually happened. That's true. Press pause. Watch the movie. Go watch it. Come hey, on. you're back. Okay. 
So let's get on with the plot. Let's start with Act One, The Pledge. Listeners, this film is told as a multi-layered series of flashbacks that would boggle even Quentin Tarantino. And it's all set out at the very beginning of the film. Two rival magicians, Alfred Borden and Robert Angier, at the dawn of the 20th century in London. The former is imprisoned and on trial for murdering the latter at his magic show. A solicitor representing a Lord Caldlow shows up at the jail and offers to buy Borden's tricks for £5,000 and thereby take on his soon-to-be-orphaned daughter as his ward. As an offer of good faith, the solicitor gives Borden Angier's diary from when he was in Colorado seeking the assistance of inventor Nikola Tesla. In that diary, Angier talks about reading a diary of Borden that he has himself procured, (laughs) in which Borden (laughs) describes his rivalry with Angier. Okay. This is actually, I want to say, it's not that hard to follow once you're in it. Mm-hmm. When you describe it. <laughs> it was very hard to put that paragraph together, though, Anna. I just want to be clear on this. But, okay, now we can tell the plot, I think, told in about as linear a way as, as I possibly can. So, Borden and Angier were young assistants to a hack magician and the ingenieur, which is, by the way, just a great word, Cutter, mm-hmm. as was Angier's wife, Julia. Things start to go awry when Borden uses the wrong knot to tie Julia in the water tank trick. Julia drowns, and Borden swears he doesn't know which knot he used. After burying his wife, Angier infiltrates one of Borden's magic shows and sabotages a bullet-catching act. This severs two of Borden's fingers, putting a bit of a damper on his magic career, just as he and his wife Sarah have a newborn child. Borden then gets his revenge when he sabotages a magic show that Angier was performing with Cutter. Thus begins a rivalry that neither magician will be able to walk away from. Anna, one of the interesting things the film does is construct a difference between a magician and a wizard, in that the latter could actually do something, whereas the magician just gives the illusion of doing so. And is it me, or does Nolan seem to prefer magicians over wizards? Does he prefer magicians over wizards? Or rather, magic over science, or like the illusion over science, I guess would be the way to put it. I don't know. This is an interestingly critical movie. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of heroes. No, there are not. No. Even even Michael Caine's character isn't necessarily. You know, he's he's pretty cynical. Yeah. It's not a cynical movie. No, it's not. I mean, the movie makes clear judgments about various of the various characters. Right. Yeah. I think it's a movie. It's primarily about obsession. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really his interest. Mm-hmm. This is maybe where we can talk a little bit how the magic here is so incidental to the plot. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, the magic exists in this plot in order to, like, say something about work and right. craft, I think, actually. Let's right? put it this way. There is literally only, like, two magic tricks that we see at any length in this yeah. film. There's the water tank and there's the transported man. Everything else is like stuff that anyone who has been to a kid's magic show would have seen. So Yeah. Yeah. Although it involves killing birds, which I I didn't think that Yeah, that was a that was unfortunate. Really but that was that was, un- well, yeah, was that's something you know, I didn't this, want to this know. might have been during the Victorian <laughs> period, to be to be fair. But like you're right in that it's it's about the art of of doing a magic trick, but it's not about the magic per se, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah, I, I mean, because Tesla, if anything, like Tesla's actually a, a good guy. Mm-hmm. If there is a good guy in yeah. the in you know, the movie, and he's a wizard, Yes, right? that's correct. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. In the context of this movie. What it might be, you know what it is? It, what Nikola it, Tesla is actually cool. able to do magic. Right. <laughs> you know what it might be? It's that what's weird is that the magicians don't seem to value it. 
I guess would be the way to put it. Is like if you can actually do something with science, that somehow is like a cheat almost. And that's the imp- at least that was the impression I got watching it. Well, I think it has to do with this whole idea of getting your hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's what does it take? If you are not getting your hands dirty, then you don't deserve to be able to do the trick. I guess. Although that seems really weird to argue. But I guess the idea of effort is something that, you know, it matters. (laughs) I think they bicker among themselves about whether or not magic or wizardry, like, what matters most. But um, the points that Nolan is making here have to do with sacrifice. That's fair. Obsession. Yeah. And and I think in some ways that is the as you that is the debate that Borden and Angier wind up having uh, yeah. towards the end. But let's get back to the plot and uh, act two, the turn. So Borden has devised a new trick, the transported man that has him throw a ball from one side of the stage to the other, which is then caught by him as well. The trick blows Angier away. He and Cutter try to copy it by employing a double, a drunken actor named Root. Angier's showmanship is much better than Borden's, and his show then takes off. Angier, however, cannot drop his obsession with Borden's trick, and so asks his assistant-slash-lover, Olivia, to go work for Borden to find out his secret, the secret to the trick. This backfires very badly. Borden plants the idea in Root's mind that he has leverage over Angier because he's absolutely necessary for the new transported man trick to work. Root starts blackmailing Angier. Then Borden sabotages the trick causing Angier to break his leg when falling through the trap door, and Borden to take Root's place, showing him up badly. Worse, Olivia falls in love with Borden. As a going-away present to Angier, she gives him Borden's notebook, which is written in code with a keyword cipher. Anna, the weakest plot point to me was Angier actually asking Olivia to find out Borden's secret for the transported man. Because he does this after his own version of it, has clearly succeeded and has clearly succeeded far better than what Borden attempted. Mm-hmm. And even given their rivalry, it seemed to me like too big of a risk to take. But am I wrong? What do you mean by risk? I mean, why? Would, I, I understand it's a cutthroat world out there, but like the reason Angier wants to know the secret is because he's convinced that Borden has some better way of doing the trick, right. I guess. Right. Except that. But what's the, what is he risking by asking Olivia to spy on him? Well, I mean, let's face it. These two have sabotaged each other already. I mean, you know, trying to like spy even further is just that it's it's escalation, I guess, would be the way to put it. I will say I think that this is just like Angier's is so he is the one who is more obsessed than Borden for a while. Right. Right. Uh, which, to be fair, um, his, given his wife that has his died. his wife you know, was killed. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. His wife is killed and Borden can't even say whether he did it or not or like was responsible. That's the. Right. You know. So I actually didn't have trouble with this particular plot. OK, point. fair enough. I think that Angier is so focused on winning and he's yeah, also very egomaniacal, right? Yeah, yeah. Like he doesn't care what really happens next. He And he just, just monomaniacal as well. He yeah. just wants to know this one thing. It doesn't matter that he's more successful. Right, no, you're he, correct. He has a little bit of a conversation about this with Cutter. Yes. Where Cutter's like, why do you want it? Like basically Cutter's like, why do you need to know his secret? Right. Like we're doing great. Exactly. And that, <laughs> basically I'm team Cutter at that point is I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, but like, yeah. but I grant you, obviously the plot can't continue unless he does this. But that was the one moment where I was like, uh, he could have walked away right then and there and it would have been much yeah, better. Yeah, but they all, there's the, there's several points yeah. from here on out where they all could have walked away. Yeah. I will point out that apparently this kind of espionage did really happen in that vicious world of Victorian magic. So was it always like the way. female assistants that were the spies? That's the part that I was kind no, of curious it, about. No, it, it apparently was sometimes like stagehands Ah, stuff. fair enough. Okay, that makes a little more sense. Yes. I'm okay. actually curious about the history of female assistants. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe I'll look that up too. I'm not going to lie, Anna. Watching this, I did. I was like, I wonder if Anna would be, have been a good assistant or not. <laughs> no. Yeah. I would be a good magician. There we go. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Let us proceed with Act 3, The Prestige. Borden's act takes off after sabotaging Angier's act. He uses some theatrical tech from Nikola Tesla, and the transported man is a big hit. In retaliation, Angier and Cutter kidnap Borden's ingenue Fallon and bury him. <laughs> Borden gives Angier the keyword to his stolen diary in return for revealing Fallon's location, which is literally in a graveyard, and then Borden has to, like, you know, use his yeah. hands to, to dig him Things up. Things are escalating, Dan. Yeah. Things are escalating. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Borden's diary takes Angier to Colorado Springs to meet Tesla. Tesla warns Angier about the dangers of obsession, but agrees to create a machine for him. Angier subsequently realizes that Borden's diary was a plant, created by Borden as a distraction. Tesla builds the machine for him, but instead of teleporting objects, Tesla's machine duplicates anything placed inside it, placing the duplicate a short distance away. Tesla promises to work out the kinks. He is driven out of Colorado Springs, however, by the agents of his rival, Thomas Edison. Not before, however, he sends the machine to Angier. The magician returns to London and contracts Cutter to manage his last magic show, The Real Transported Man, for a limited run of 100 shows. Borden, flush with success from his act, pursues an affair with Olivia. Sarah becomes aware of it and is driven to drink and then to suicide in Borden's workshop. Olivia, disgusted with herself and Borden, informs him at their goodbye lunch that Angier is back in town with a new act. Anna, I think it's safe to say that none of the women in this film have happy endings. <laughs> is this a sign of the times of late Victorian London or a symbol of Nolan's oeuvre? He's not kind to women, that is for sure. Not the most progressive filmmaker. I am more it's impressed than ever by Anne Hathaway, by the way, because Anne Hathaway is the exception. In... Oh, right, right, right. I was like, she's not in this no, movie. No, she's not yes. in this movie, but like as an actress in Nolan's films, she's been in two of them. She's yes. done very well for herself is all I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. And again, the acting by the women in this film is quite good. Oh, yeah, this Every, is not a knock on the... performances yeah. are, are very, very yeah. good. Yeah. But they're, you know, literally side pieces, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Like all of them. And, and Scarlett Johansson should have been given more to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's sort of the lot of the magician's assistant, I, I guess. I hate to say it, but this might have been, I mean, like, this movie came out in 2006, and, and while obviously Scarlett Johansson had demonstrated her ability to act before this, this was sort of her, look at the pretty girl phase of her career, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But she does, again, all of the acting is really good yeah. and ne needed in a movie with this, uh, that has such twists to it. Yeah. Like, I think you ne really need good, subtle acting in order to, like, carry the twist. I will say that the other thing, you know? in some ways, the key female performance here is Rebecca Hall, who plays yes. Sarah. Because, and it, first of all, it's, it's she's probably got the most screen time of, of any of the women. But more importantly, she is the one character who knows the secret, you know, mm -hmm. and... The, or figures it out. Or figures it out. And, like, it, it's the one moment where this movie almost becomes a horror movie because it really is, like... She does a great job of telegraphing the ravages of having to live with the secret. And mm -hmm. so I thought that was incredibly effective. I want to talk about Tesla just a little. Yes, please. Played by David Bowie, by the way, which is... It's, Who apparently was the person that Nolan was thinking about. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, the thing about David yeah. Bowie, whenever he performs in a movie, is like you cannot stop watching him. He's like... I don't know if he's a good actor, but like he's just electric you know and, and he's magnetic yeah yeah, yeah he really is uh, magnetic hmm. tesla <laughs> i said electric so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
I know I said magnetic. There you go. Magnetic electricity. <laughs> Angier probably should have noticed that Borden was doing the transported man without the Tesla shit for a while. Yeah, that the original version of the trick, there's no yeah. there's no Tesla stuff. There's no stuff. Tesla. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. why would that? Fe- I feel like he should have noticed that, especially since he's the showman, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And would maybe notice, like, something that was added just to do some razzmatazz, which is basically what... Right. Is, is for, the in the case of Borden, the Tesla stuff is literally just bells and whistles and, you know, the diversion. It, it serves no right. actual Right, so I feel like... Purpose. And also, how would Borden have afforded a Tesla machine? That's an interesting question. Although, and where it, would he have gotten it? Well, like, it's my main thing. Well, no, no, no. So, gone. Okay. So, so hold on. J- just to, on that point. First of all, remember, you know, Borden does see Tesla at the London exhibition. Right, right, right. And okay. also, no, Bo- not he doesn't literally. He doesn't see him. He says he sees the machine. But yes, but also, yeah. Borden doesn't need a fancy Tesla machine. He literally just needs a machine that does the bells and whistles. So that's probably right. much cheaper. I'm assuming. But Angier doesn't know that. Yeah, like, yeah. Angier doesn't know that. Oh, so I see. Okay. There, this is actually the plot point that was a problem for me. Because the other thing is, it's really like Gone Girl level planning <laughs> to have an entire fake diary in code. Yes. That is also based around Tesla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that then is also the keyword Tesla. Yeah. Like, did he write this whole diary in one sitting? Like, with, in Gone Girl, at least she, she takes like a year to do like all the different diaries that she does. And she's like planning it the entire time. But this seems like a lot to do to like just to get someone to go to Colorado Springs. I mean, no, I mean, Anna, like these two have clearly, they're not afraid to get their that's hands true, dirty that's true, i mean you that's know true. you know what yeah. also like it's the answer that i gave you about having olivia go and spy right, right? Yeah. like this is just the links that they will go to right it's gone girl diary i think that right? was and by the way to go back to my previous question i think that's what bugged me about angier's decision it's like really like you've managed to get your life together olivia is clearly smitten with you and this is what you're gonna do like it was it was unfathomable to me which i grant you is you know I'm not obsessed, so that that's probably <laughs> probably a good thing that it was unfathomable to me. Let's put it that way. And this is also this is just Borden fucking with Angiers. Yeah. I have to say, yeah. like it is, it would require a lot of planning mm-hmm. and a lot of work to do the coded yeah. diary that then you say is you know. Although like, literally, all he has to do is write the diary. It's not like he has to do anything else. He can just let Angiers spin away on an, on his own. Right. Although it's, I think it's funny the way he invokes Tesla. Yeah. I mean, that Tesla becomes a part of it. Right. And I guess he just figures that Angiers is like so obsessive, he'll go to yeah. Colorado Springs. To well, the thing I did like was that it actually touches on what is a legit, was an actual historical rivalry between Tesla yeah. and Edison. Yeah. In which, yeah. yeah, there were definitely dirty deeds there. So, yes. 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 Moving on. All right. Let's close with the final act, the Nolan. Angier's act, in which he transports across an entire theater in a single second, is a huge hit, and Borden is obsessed with figuring out how it works. Neither he nor Fallon can suss it out. He knows that he should drop this, but he can't help himself, and therefore goes backstage during one of Angier's shows and sees Angier drop into a locked water tank. Borden tries to break the glass, but Angier drowns. Borden is tried and convicted of Angier's murder. In prison, Borden realizes that Angier's diary is also a plant. Lord Caldlow brings... <laughs> he, again, the symmetry in this film on it, you know, it, it's not subtle. Yeah. Lord Caldlow brings Borden's daughter, and Borden learns that Caldlow is, in fact, Angier. Tesla's device still duplicated things. So, every night, 
Angier would be duplicated, and one of them would drown while the other would be the prestige. Cutter finds out the secret and is, appropriately, appalled. Borden is hanged, and yet, as Angier is packaging the prestige materials from his act, is startled to see Borden shoot him. Surprise! Borden was a twin, and the twins alternated between being Borden and his engineer Fallon. One of them loved Sarah, one of them loved Olivia, and it was the latter one that couldn't let the rivalry with Angier go. As Angier dies and the theater burns up, Borden collects his daughter from Cutter and, I suppose, lives about as happily ever after as a Nolan character can. <laughs> Anna, a lot of this movie depends on the quality of the makeup and the disguises used particularly for Christian Bale, but also Hugh Jackman. And to be honest, I think this might be why I didn't quite like the movie as much as you did. I found the makeup and the costuming for Fallon a little bit unconvincing, but I confess that I'm not entirely sure of this. I think if I remember, it was that when I first watched the film, Fallon is simply too much of a cipher to notice at first, but the more it goes on, the more obvious it was to me that Fallon was Borden and so on and so forth. What say you? Well, first, just to the Jackman's double role where he right. plays the actor the root, and yeah. himself. I, it's not great. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clearly Jackman playing two roles. Right. But as an, as an audience member, okay, fine. I almost you wish know. they had made him, like, I almost wish he had had to wear a little more makeup as Root so he didn't quite look as much like Jackman, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting to actually try to do what they do, supposedly, and find someone who just looked up. Oh, that like would have him. been interesting. Yes, that's true. Yeah, That would have been, I think, the harder and <laughs> getting their hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead, they rely on movie magic. Right, right. But, you know, I'm for, as an audience member, I can forgive that. Yeah, yeah. I remember being fooled by Fallon the first time, oh, but okay. I thought Christian Bale might be a psychopath. <laughs> well, I mean, honor to be serious. fair. Like that, yeah. <laughs> there, there's an extent to which is. he sort of is. I mean, yeah. sociopath, I mean, whatever, like, like, you know. Split, like a, a split personality or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Because there is a lot of, like, freighted dialogue oh, yeah. about the two sides of this guy, oh, yeah. right? Like, and, and that's sort of what, when you watch it again, you're like, oh, they're telling us that he, two sides, he really, there's, these two people. Mm-hmm. So I remember being a little bit taken in by the twist, like the twist was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, rewatching it, it's still an enjoyable movie knowing the twist is coming. That is correct, yes. No, and I enjoyed it watching it this time also. My question also is that, so <laughs> was Angier pretending to be American this entire time? I th- that seems weird to me. <laughs> I think he was because, I mean, it's the only explanation. He had to have been Lord Coldlow the right. whole time because uh, the, the, the question I kept wondering was, wait, where did he get all the money to buy Tesla's thing because, like, at that point, he was a moderately successful magician, but there was no way he would have, yeah. I figured he was, like, came from wealth. Right. Because there's actually a little bit of a, when he has a conversation with his wife early on, where he's like, his family wouldn't approve of him being in the theater. Right. Right. And and he's clearly wealthy. And I was kind of like, okay, he comes from money. His family doesn't want him to be slumming it, right. you know, yeah. um, in the theater. But he's an American mm. <laughs> for most of the movie. It is interesting why he bothers, you know... <laughs> Why does he like that, do the American accent? I don't know, but maybe it's maybe it's further misdirection. I mean, to be fair, that's right, further misdirection, living the lie. Um, and then the other thing I I, I want to believe, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's for sure, is that Jess inherits Caldo's wealth. Jess is the daughter. Yes, uh, Christ, I hope so. I mean, I, I hope so. Yeah. Right, like like let's hope he actually did adopt her as his. Let, let's put it this way: Jess is the only in actual innocent in this entire film, yes. so she deserves. Yes. 
you know, I, I hope she Sarah yes. kind of, but yeah, no, that's know. fair. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I hope that I hope that she inherits all of Caldo's wealth and that she employs Cutter like. Um, oh well, I guess she like uh, whatever. I hope there's a happily ever after yeah. ending for all of them. Yes, um, those are they're the least objectionable characters besides Although, her. I like will just, say that like, the, it's the good Borden. Yeah, I, I was gonna say to be fair to Borden, like I, to, I mean, obviously there is a degree to which he's a sociopath in the sense of being willing to live a double life, but it does seem like the Borden who died was the far bigger prick of the two of yeah. them because like that Borden clearly was the one who tied the Langford badly, and that Borden was clearly the one who you know had pushed things too far with Angier. Yeah. And not to mention, like, also pursued the affair, but whatever. But they both loved Jess. They did. That's true. Yes. 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 All right. Let's move on. Okay. A very important question, Dan. Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this movie? Anna, most of the audience doesn't want to see the IR in a film. You have to be willing to get your hands dirty. And my hands are filthy! (laughs) (laughs) All right, the IR that is worthy of note in this film is the effect of competition and rivalry on actors. And by actors, I'm not just talking about actors in film, but, you know, nation states in world politics. Competition can actually be a good thing in international relations. Many scholars and economic historians argue that the reason that Europe colonized the rest of the world, as opposed to the rest of the world colonizing Europe, is because of the vigorous interstate competition on the continent. Because these states were constantly jockeying for power and influence, it made it impossible for these states to ignore radical technological or scientific innovations that would enhance their power for reasons, you know, of, let's say, culture or what have you. Whereas countries like Imperial China were, in fact, able to repress certain innovations because they felt that it would upset the Confucian order. So just as... Okay, I got it. Sorry. Yeah. Can I ask? Professor. Yeah, go ahead. Can I ask a question? Sure. Can I interrupt your lecture? Sorry. Sorry, no, it's fine. So you're saying like the various countries in Europe, right? like Spain, England, France, France Prussia, whatever, yeah. are in competition right. to colonize. Not just to colonize, but also to control Europe as well. They're competing with each other. And because of this, to, to, to control territory and to make sure that they, you know, right. stay alive. And because of this, they wind up innovating far more on the military side of things than most other parts of the world. And so that's what makes it easier for them to colonize other parts of the world rather than vice versa. They got to get better at killing indigenous people. Yes, basically. Okay. So they, and so the person who can most efficiently kill indigenous people wins. Yes. Or occupy. Let's, you know, they didn't always kill, but yes, but yes, essentially the states that actually had the most fearsome military power were obviously able to colonize, you know, more efficiently and and more brutally. And this is sort of, it's like a proxy war, literally, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's the same as having like a wartime arms race, but it's just an arms race to colonize. Well, in some ways the the two are indistinguishable because they were constantly innovating to fight wars in Europe. It also made it much easier to engage in colonization elsewhere. All right. All right. And in China, you were saying China by contrast. China by contrast was was so obviously the largest actor in its system that it never felt the need to innovate quite as much. I mean, there were innovations, to be absolutely clear. But by the time you get to the Ming China days, actually, the emperors there would often shut off certain kinds of innovations because they were worried that those innovations were so disruptive to society that it wasn't worth it. And so they were less tolerant uh, of innovation right up until the moment that they found themselves losing wars to the Europeans. 
Obviously, this is not all sweetness and light. In IR, there is a concept of enduring rivalry. An enduring rivalry is when two states, or what we would call a dyad, have frequent conflicts with each other, um, just constantly, you know, fighting war after war after war. And one of the interesting things about international relations is that war is a relatively rare event in international relations, and a disproportionate number of wars um, are fought by just a couple of dyads. So think Britain and France up until Napoleon or India and Pakistan uh, since 1947. As Tesla warned, rivalry very quickly turns to obsession. And I did think it is interesting that this movie gestures at the other rivalry, yeah. the, the real-life rivalry between Tesla and Edison. Mm -hmm. I want to point out that that turned out the way that it did because Edison cheated. Yep. <laughs> this wasn't like a genuine rivalry of innovation, mm -hmm. right? Where like they're each learning from each other's mistakes or trying to invent the same thing. Mm -hmm. This is just Edison grinding Tesla into the ground via you know, public opinion. Right. And which, unfortunately, I mean, by the way, when it doesn't seem fair, when it, well, I will say this, <laughs> when it comes to competition over standards in particular, one of the problems is the best man does not always win. I mean, you can argue that, for example, one of the reasons that think about personal computers in the late 70s. So there was the Apple format and then there was the IBM PC. I think most computer folk back in the day thought that the Apple system was a far superior system. But IBM wins. And the reason IBM wins was paradoxically because they were stupid and they let Microsoft be responsible for the software. And so as a result, anyone could build software that was compatible with the IBM, whereas Apple was much more proprietary about it, which meant that they, mm -hmm. you know, didn't have as many applications or software products, which meant that eventually businesses wound up gravitating to IBM. People forget that for a while, Apple was the loser. Yes. We were, you know, <laughs> Gen Xers and boomers. We're old enough to remember. old enough to remember when Apple was like, oh, come on. Like, you know, they're like just a boutique firm. They won't actually do anything. Yeah. Yes. All right, Anna. But that actually, you know, question of corporate rivalry does uh, lead to another natural question for you. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan. Yes. Nothing is impossible. What you want is merely expensive. I love the way Bowie says that And this that movie <laughs> is surprisingly anti-capitalist. Yes. <laughs> this is really interesting there's a, obviously a great irony there's a lot of ironies about this movie including this idea that you know craft is actually not great if you're obsessed by it right. even though that's what movie makers do mm -hmm. <laughs> is create illusions and make money off of people believing their illusions and it's also contrary to uh, how we normally see this stuff presented in films like normally craft yeah. is something that is praised yeah yeah, and we've had a whole conversation about right. craft. Um, but this is a movie about the labor that goes into making something seem effortless. <laughs> it reveals the work and the sacrifice behind the consumer product. Ooh. And if you think about it, a magic trick is always a subversion of the market, right? It's turning something into nothing, turning nothing into something. It's an unequal exchange. Mm -hmm. And you could argue, and people have argued um, when looking at the history of magic, that as an audience, we are fascinated by magic because it's an escape from labor, an escape from the market. Mm -hmm. Nothing is ever really at risk, and you can create things without doing the labor. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Nolan really intends to communicate this, mm -hmm. but it really feels anti-capitalist because the ultimate message, and we talked about this, is that no amount of profit is worth the work you put into it, that getting your hands dirty is overrated. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And that success, material success without an emotional life, you know, without someone to share it with is empty. And there's tons of dialogue about this. 
I guess, although... Do you have I, thoughts? Well, so, yeah. a couple things. First of all, to be awkward about it, obsession is an emotion. Like, there okay. are... there are, and, I, and so, like, this is... I just want to push back a little bit because... Definitely Borden and Angier feel emotions towards each other. Well, then perhaps I should say success without people to share it with. Fair enough, yes. Success without company. Success without a community. Without social ties. Without social ties. Yes. No, no, no. That's that's absolutely But you're right. Obsession is is an emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And it crowds out every other emotion. Right. And that is definitely the thing that... that I I think that that is the message that Nolan is consciously trying to tell us, would be the way I would put it. And I don't know if it's really anti-market, yeah. right? It, it just, that's sort of what it winds up looking like yeah. to me, because that's what I'm Although the other for. thing I would add is that also, one of the other th- subtle themes throughout this film is is Nolan's argument, or the both Angier and Borden talk about this, and Cutter too, that the audience knows that they're being fooled. Yeah. And that is in some ways the implicit contract that, that goes on in a magic act, which is, I know that what you're doing isn't actually happening but you actually have to do a good enough job to persuade me to give me just a sense enough to think wow to like not know exactly how you did it that the interesting thing is that one of the things that that you're selling is mystery and mm-hmm. and this is an explicit piece of dialogue in the film where it's like once you tell someone the secret of the trick the trick becomes worthless I also really like uh, there's an exchange of dialogue, I think, when Tesla comes on the scene mm-hmm. where Angiers said, if people knew what I was doing was really magic, they'd run away screaming. Yes, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Which I really like. Yeah, I did like that. I will also point out that the market is a form of magic. <laughs> I am not the first person to come up with this particular critique. And there's an argument that magic and history of magic are very intertwined with advertising mm-hmm. and late capitalism. Both in literally the history of magic, uh, magicians innovated in self-promotion mm-hmm. and kinds of advertising. Like they did a lot of a lot of stuff that seems really like product placement is something magicians did. You know, uh, swag mm-hmm. is something magicians did. There's there is kind of an interesting way in which they were leaders in advertising. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the fact that late capitalism is defined by the separation of labor from the goods <laughs> it produces. And also making the goods ha- mean something beyond what they are, mm. right? Mm. Like that it's not just you're not just buying a beer. Right. You're buying a beer that makes you more masculine and more social. You're not just like... You're buying a uh, brand. You're buying a brand. And that is a kind of totem. Yes. That's yes. a kind of charm. Mm-hmm. And so... There's actually this, there's a book called, I believe, called The Magic of Advertising that gets into this as like, as like a folk thing, mm-hmm. you know, that this really is a kind of magic. And then, of course, Dan, mm-hmm. capitalism requires us to devote our life to the trick, <laughs> to live the lie, getting our hands dirty in exchange for an illusion. And Dan, you know what? Mm-hmm. It requires us to kill ourselves a little bit. <laughs> Every time we do the trick. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know what? I, <laughs> I'm applauding that. That was... I don't agree with it, but I'm applauding it. I admire the showmanship, Bana. Which, by the way, is, is something else that I did like about the movie, is that when you see particularly Angier's character doing his magic act, there is a strong degree of showmanship to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, as you say, Jackman is perfectly cast in this because if, if Hugh Jackman is anything, he is a great showman. 
Well, he did actually. Now he's done a movie. And he called The Greatest Showman, yes. The the Greatest Showman. But he he is perfect, and he's great. And he also... You know what, Dan? Wait, hold on. Oh, Oh, sparks! There's sparks everywhere! Sparks Sparks everywhere! (laughs) It's the debrief. Yes. Where we talk about the stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about. And Dan, we were just talking about Hugh Jackman. I was just going to say, I think it's really interesting... The, how good the performances are mm-hmm. and Jackman doesn't play a villain a ton and this is a really interesting like but he's a sympathetic villain is the thing like he, he's, he's but he's definitely a villain. a villain yes absolutely yes. but he's definitely a villain and it again I guess I'm saying this a lot but I, I feel like the performances make this movie mm-hmm. it, it that's what really makes this movie watchable multiple times yes. not obviously not the twist excellent what else do you have there is some really good lines, a lot of the stuff about getting your hands dirty and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a line that Cutter has, the world is simple, miserable, and solid all the way through. Mm. We're talking about why magic appeals to people. Yeah. And I'm sure this is unintentional, but there's a quote in the Communist Manifesto about all that is solid melts into air. Mm-hmm. All because, of yes. <laughs> because of capitalism. Because of capitalism, that's right. I have a couple of nitpicks. Fair enough. Um, including, which I said, but one of them I said before, which is that I feel like Andrew should have noticed that Tesla magic, you know, wasn't a part of what Borden was doing mm-hmm. at first. Right. So why, you know, whatever. And then there, and so one of the ways they communicate with each other, especially is leaving miniature playing cards underneath their beers. Right. right? And this is so nitpicky, but when it happens, when Cutter leaves a card for Angier, mm-hmm. like Cutter's in the bar. Yeah. Right. When Angier leaves a, card for cutter he's not there so part of me is just like wait what like Ah, of all the things to question i know i know i know how exact are these tesla copies (laughs) is a question that i have i will say this like so there's (laughs) there's a scene where angier goes into the machine realizes for the first time creates a duplicate and then kills the duplicate i believe um although i wasn't sure who was who and all i kept wondering was no, you idiot. That's where, like, you don't ever need to use the machine again. You actually now have a twin. You can do the, the act the way that Borden did it. Um, yeah, that is a really good point. Thank you. Yeah, why kill them every time? Right. Why do that? You don't have to do like, that. You can just, like, you know, and you can, again, alternate and so forth. Like, all you after that, all you needed was the very simple Tesla machine that would just create the sparks. You didn't need to do anything else. Yeah. You know what, Dan? I am embarrassed that I didn't think of that. <laughs> I guess the one thing you could say is that if you have a twin, then things get sticky with who controls the act. But if it's an exact copy, then don't you both want the same thing? Perhaps, although the argument now could be that maybe Angier knows himself too well and therefore can't trust a copy of himself. That is true. And then also it is interesting to bring up the limited engagement, only 100 performances. Like why does he do only 100 performances and then he's going to retire? I think because maybe even there is the awkward issue of you have 100 bodies to dispose of then. (laughs) That is awkward. It is awkward. I think it's funny. Nolan does do intentionally, I think, a lot of the time. Again, it's one of the movies that reason is weird is his critique of craft mm-hmm. but he has sort of has sort of meta messages about art yeah you know throughout his movies and i think it's interesting the transported man mm-hmm. to be transported is something we often say about good art <laughs> true yes dan what do you got a couple things first of all it's worth noting no most of nolan's films have a lot of pretty scenery 
to them. This one was no exception. There are some beautiful shots, particularly in Colorado. There's that one shot where like there's a field that's lit up by Tesla's light bulbs. That's it's a just lovely little moment. Also, this film has one of those oddities. I, I, I don't know why I like this, but I love these moments in films when you have multiple accents in which a non-American actor has to speak with an American accent to an American actor using a foreign accent. So in this case, Hugh Jackman is speaking with an American accent. Scarlett Johansson is using a British accent. This is probably just me being weird, but I always like that those weird moments when that happens. <laughs> That's a really specific kink. I, yes, I know. But like, for example, like in the first Tomb Raider movie, Angelina Jolie speaks with a British accent. Daniel Craig speaks with an American accent. I just I always find it <laughs> bizarre when they like, you know, have to flip flop like that. It's a very specific Jeopardy category. Yes, too. very true. Just a small little thing. I did like that Nolan cast Ricky Jay as the hack magician. Yeah. Because Ricky Jay is, he's a magician who occasionally acts, but mostly he's known for, for actually being a magician. So it seemed like uh, appropriate casting. I believe he passed away relatively oh, recently. Oh, that is sad. Yeah. But now I want to go, now I want to go watch some Mammoth movies because he's- Right, he is in a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was also in a Bond film. But I think that's it for me. Do you want to talk a little bit more about Nolan and Symmetry? Because we did mention it, yeah. but it's a huge thing. In the right. Movie. I mean, we like, you know. Just acknowledge. Yeah. So let's. It's fitting that a movie about like a rivalry has this kind of symmetry where each of them writes a diary to confuse the other. Each of them suffers losses. Each of them has a physical injury. Yeah. Each of them has a physical injury. Each of them experiences successes, but then can't let the obsession go. It is a way in which they find the doppelganger in the other, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. And so... And he's interested in that in general. You're right. Like, Nolan is very interested in mirrors. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tenet, you can argue in particular, is Tenet is, I think, the apotheosis of this, which is the movie is literally almost symmetrical in terms of, like, how it treats time and so forth. And speaking of how we treat time, we're about done. Yes. Yes. I think we are. (laughs) Yep. Thank you for doing this movie with me, Dan. Oh. Like, I know it's not the Nolan movie you were thinking of, but we will do a different We will Nolan do a different Nolan, but this was a pleasure. No, I want to be very clear. This was an enjoyable movie to watch. And, you know, again, any movie with Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Scarlett Johansson, Rebecca Hall is not going to be in a... And Michael Caine. And Michael yes. Caine. And Piper Parabo. She, she has a small role, but she's very good in this. Yeah. N- not is. an unpleasant experience. <laughs> All right, but that is about it. As a reminder, we're doing Firefly mm-hmm. next week, and then we have a string of 80s or 80s-inflected <laughs> big dumb movies. And then we might continue Hot Sci-Fi Summer after we that. Can, there are a lot of 80s really movies hot. we can choose, so we can, we can talk. We'll have to sketch out the precise schedule over the next yeah. week or so. And again, if you aren't already a patron, please consider becoming one at patreon.com slash Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.